Nintendo Audio. A quick thanks before we start the show. Filmmaking Confidential, the book, is getting rave reviews from readers, filmmakers, film professors, and even people in creative fields other than filmmaking. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it and for your support. If you haven't yet picked it up and you want to learn more filmmaking secrets, Filmmaking Confidential is for you. It's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order it by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out filmmakingconfidential.com and stevebalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. Each week, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is one of my favorite filmmakers, Adam Barnick. Adam's short film, Mainstream, played seven international film festivals and opened the New York City Horror Film Festival its year of release. Fangoria Magazine and Coke Vision acquired it for worldwide distribution on their Fangoria Blood Drive DVD of America's best short horror films. Mainstream is one of the best short films ever made. I don't remember when I saw your film mainstream but when i when i saw it i at that point of time in my life was adamantly opposed to short films i didn't i didn't like them i didn't see the point in them i didn't know why anyone would want to do one and when i saw yours i thought oh this is why and it's the best it's the only short film that should ever have been made is what i said I do remember your, uh, you never told me why you felt that, but you did always tell me that it was essentially your favorite standalone short. Totally. And you um, thought, you saw it before it got distribution, which, I mean, getting a short film distributed now, you do, we just push a button. But it really got released on DVD around the world, and that was what kind of, I don't, it didn't kick the door open, but it nudged it enough that I could start getting, you know, actually bits and pieces into the industry. But I think I just gave you like a burn. Like it hadn't been, maybe that I knew it was going to get distributed on DVD, but it hadn't come out. I feel like it was maybe like six or seven months before that. So I probably just gave you a burn like, oh yeah, this is what I just did. Check it out. Yeah. And it was fantastic. So tell me the genesis of it. Of course, this was 2005. So you shot on film. Yeah. There are other short films on that compilation I, I some of them were film and some were not like digital was just sort of starting to creep in and it didn't have the the quality that we take for granted now but yeah i did do it on 16 and so you wanted the the origin of it yeah tell me let's back up and and walk me through the origin of well back up all the way <laughs> when did you start? When did you start making films? When did you know that you were a visual storyteller? How did you progress into making short films? And then when did it like give, give me a little bit of your whole story? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think it was till there were brief flashes of an interest in this in in high school, screwing around and making, you know, your backyard camcorder epics with your friends and i just noticed how intensely i was taking it 
seriously in terms of the prep, in terms of needing to know each of the steps versus like, let's just go out and, and horse around and figure it out as we go. Um, it was actually through the preparation that I think I really fell for the process. Uh, it wasn't so much the being on set and that's kind of actually largely shifted. Now I find pre-production very anxiety inducing, but I have done enough of everything that I can let that go and enjoy being on set. Like we'll probably talk about like the making of mainstream was actually a lot. I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> and a lot of that comes down to the, the people you bring on board. And I was, didn't really know anyone in the industry. So I didn't know that if people are, don't care, you can get people who do care, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, but definitely through high school, I, this started to build and build. And then I was really like, I think this is an area I need to move in. And I didn't necessarily know that was going to be directing. Uh, editing was so super duper primitive then that I wasn't really thinking about that as the craft other than you just stick clips together. You know, I did go to film school. I went to the school of visual arts in New York city and I had mixed feelings about that now, but it was also pre, you know, there was no other resource at a touch of a button back then. So it was like, it's film school or you've got a relative who can teach you everything if you're lucky. You know. Um, um, so it was useful to, for you going to film school. Yeah. I, 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 I appreciate it more now than I did at the time, but I also think you, I, I think you need to be educated. You know how it is. We're, we're never going to learn everything. We're always going to be students of this. Um, I don't think you have to go to film school now officially. And, and, you know, no one has ever asked me on, you know, can I see your degree before we decide if we want to work with you? But it all comes down to that education. And that's what's great now is it's like how much, not just, you know, let's say gear tutorials and this is and that's, but it's like now a lot of stuff that we know if we missed on television as kids, we'd never see it again. Somebody's found a way to get that digital digitized and you can find every Orson Welles interview and, the educational resources now are, are limitless. And I even have like a post-it on my computer now that says daily director studies because I'm trying to pivot much, much deeper back towards directing. So now I'll watch the interviews with directors and more like on-set B-roll. And like, you know, I, I can get access to that stuff anytime. Um, after film school, I had a couple of years, which is just sort of like, I guess like the slacker period. Once I got back to New York, I got a little more, invested in it. I was working at a production company that did TV commercials for the Japanese market. You know, like a lot of celebrities do, they won't do American commercials, but like you can find like Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis doing soda pop and car commercials for Japan. We were doing that. Um, there was a great music video out there for the band Guitar Wolf, where uh, I got to help them prep it in the office from day one. And then it was kind of like, I'm going to get to go to the set and be the PA. And then one of the actors never showed up. So I ended up being like the lead spaceman in, in the video. And I'm wearing like those hazard mat suits from Outbreak, like literally those, like I had to talk with the costume department at Warner Brothers to get those suits sent to us. Uh, and I'm running around like a maniac with my laser gun, getting chased by like women in jogging outfits through like a dilapidated Greenpoint, Brooklyn. That's one of my favorite onset experiences and almost passing out from dehydration a couple of times during the day. Amazing. <laughs> um, mainstream is kind of like my first post film school 
short. And it kind of is still a film school short. I learned more making that and producing it start to finish with so many limited people because I just didn't know anyone industry-wise really yet with maybe the exception of just a few classmates. So I had to do and learn everything relating to getting that one off the ground. And it took forever, but um, it was a great sort of like post-film school, film school, which, you know, everything will be my film school after this. But that filled in a lot of blanks that I felt I didn't get at SVA. But, you know, it is only the four years and it was a different, largely analog time, you know? It was, we were cutting digitally by the end of it. But I did get to like play around and actually tape film together because like I wanted, I was like, I need to know how that like feels. Richard Pepperman was an editing instructor of mine at SVA. And he, the thing I got the most out of film school was the excitement for and the appreciation of and the understanding of the basics of the craft of editing. Once I got, and it's funny because I got to do it on really like clunky videotape, you know, like those big three quarter decks where, you know, you can change like one thing, but you have to largely edit in order. And when I finally had my first digital post set up, it was kind of paralyzing because there, immediately like I had all the choices and it wasn't like once you make this choice, there's no going back. And so you can just continue to change stuff till your heart's content. So it took me a little while to like dive back in with certainty. Cause I was just like, I can do absolutely anything now. You know, I'm actually editing in my home versus having to go to a facility or, or the school after hours or that kind of thing in order to get access to stuff. The appreciation for editing has kind of been at the forefront. I mean, I always tell people and market myself as a director, but I have done more editing than anything else. That's the area I have like the most confidence and certainty in and definitely the most experience. I'm definitely wanting to pivot back toward balancing it or making directing the priority, but I think I'm always going to be editing, whether it's my stuff or somebody else's. Why did you decide to shoot with the the desire to shoot on 16, just the, more affordable than 35 option or yeah i had had no 35 experience apart from stills and knowing how sort of inexpensively we were going to do it uh 16 seemed the best option i mean it's funny because i think about it now it's like if i was going to do it again now would i still try to do it on film and i i i really love how much the medium's been moving forward the in the past few years. But the only thing that I sort of like, like to hold on to is film. That doesn't mean I only shoot it, but I would love for it to remain as an option. I remember you were asked sort of the film versus digital debate. Maybe it was at vision fest when we met and you know, you acknowledge sort of like not pros and cons of both, but you're like, it's like oils and acrylics. Either way you end up with a painting. It's just a very, there are differences, you know, I would love to keep, doing it but I would say that was such a bare bones short you know if I had the money I would probably do 16 again but I don't think it's 100% necessary for that specific short I don't know I'd have to think about that but at the time I was wasn't that impressed with what was out there digital digitally so I was like we'll just everyone's got 16 still you know it was easier to find a camera like that and we borrowed them from people and just that's how we shot so when you were uh, shooting that, did you, how did you fund it? It was self-funded. It was only maybe like four grand at the time, uh, which, I mean, it's not that much more now in terms of the <laughs> increase of uh, costs. But we, 
you know, I went back and shot that in my hometown and it was a fun little like come back to your hometown and people open doors and help you like the, like the location we shot it in was a Grange hall that like this lady who barely knew me gave me the keys for basically gave us the run of the place, including tapping the electrical for like three and a half days um, for free. You know, there were, there were a lot of things that I wouldn't, I didn't have to pay for other than the rentals of some of the grip and lighting equipment and food for people, transportation and the makeup effects. So, and it was, you know, it's very stripped down and simple. It's not a, it, it's stylized, but it's not a hyper stylish needs a lot of money kind of short. It's kind of rickety by today's standards, but it's, I knew it wasn't going to be much. I mean, it felt like a, you know, $50,000 when you're, you know, broke and just out of school, but it, it, uh, yeah, no, I think it was about four grand and, and we were kind of struggling to get it go to do it while we we're doing it. Cause it was only maybe like three of us at a time on set, maybe four on one extra day, on the last day of shooting. And now it's like the, all the gear is so small and you, you know I mean? Like, like a large crew is almost like, what do you need those many people versus I really wish we had more people. Yeah, of course. It feels like it could be shown in a museum. Hmm. I mean, each, each of the shots and the sound design, which you did, that I didn't realize you had done until, or maybe I did know, but I didn't really know until now. It's largely me. There's a guy at the time named Justin Hennard who provided me about a dozen samples to work with that he created. I okay. don't know why. I think I just interviewed him for a, a, the site I maybe interviewed you for at the time. And he was like, hey, I do sound for these other pictures and it sounds like you're doing something cool. So here, here use these loops and samples. And actually, I don't 100% know if they were all his because I think I've heard a few of them in other movies in the past few years. But, uh, but yeah, no, that, that also made me really, I've always definitely had an ear and for sound and sound design and wanted to make sound heavy films but i i get what you're saying it is more like a little art project that would be in a loop in, in a museum versus a basic story you know I, well and everything the light and the composition like the way that it was presented and the fact that until the end there's absolutely nothing said in it you know it's it's purely cinema it's purely visual storytelling there is sound effects there is some you know things you're listening to but it's primarily only something to look at yeah. um and impossible to put a clip for this podcast because if you're just going to listen to it there's nothing to you can't you you know you're just hearing this thing yeah and it's kind of quiet in most scenes too it's just kind of droney i mean if you could have seen heard it in the theater you would have dug it and probably been able to hear the little subtleties and stuff or if you've got good headphones you still can yeah but it's not it's not a hyper elaborate mix but it was always going to be super sound intensive David Lynch is one of my favorite filmmakers and while I'm not trying to do what he does, I, I love where he goes with sound and would love to continue to do. I have other projects feature length and short that would definitely have that same amount of uh, layering and where, where a lot of the world is heard versus shown. Yeah. You know, I could see you in the scope of a feature in that style being like how I felt when I watched Tarkovsky's The Mirror. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I could I could watch mainstream for an hour and a half. Well, it's funny because there has been, I have developed a feature since then, but I 
have gone the opposite route. It's actually narrative. It isn't that as abstract as what you saw. Based uh, on the same concept? Yeah. I mean, it, it there, and is, there's even like a companion sort of short film I could make that would be sort of like the pitch film for the narrative feature. Uh, and it's funny because the short, which is titled Outside the Box, is lar- only has one line of dialogue. That was not intended. I just realized when it was over, I was like, this really only needs one line and wasn't image intensive. I'm sure there would be, the feature would have more of an emphasis on that, but it isn't as art filmish as that short. I mean, it's definitely a beginning, a middle and end story with characters and dialogue. It's largely a, a high school story, um, but it does involve the themes and the imagery and a lot of, I guess everything you liked about the short is in there too. How did it come to you? It literally came all at once. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that entirely because I, you know, it's, it's stuff that I had been thinking about probably my whole like teen years and twenties and just the conformity around me, uh, the emphasis on endless drugs and medicine advertised to us versus, you know, actual health and wellness, you know, the daily grind of stuff wearing us down, just societal autopilot. If I had to put that movie in two words, that's what I, how I would call it. I had all been just on my mind all the time. And also I have had an intense fear of surgery. Funny enough, I had it all my life. You know, I had never undergone surgery until a year after I made that short. Now I have a, now I've earned my surgery phobia, whereas I was irrational before that. But actually every sequence of what goes on in it, where like a guy wakes up and is anesthetized and operated on and then sent away. And then it's like an assembly line where other people are going to be worked on and then you see him at some other undetermined time as sort of like the suburban drone. All of that literally hit me all at once uh, a few years before I made the short. It was like this bizarre vision of like, you know, usually uh, maybe I don't know if your process works like this, but you get like one or two ideas or an image or a premise. And then it's kind of like you start putting extra sand on, on those other grains and eventually, you, you know, you get this big sand castle. But mainstream came to me start to finish all at once. It was freaking weird <laughs> to have that like in a four minute period, the entire thing just hit me. And it almost never changed other than maybe say the, the way we would have done it at different budget levels or uh, with more people or more resources. It was always the same sequences. It was always the same one line of dialogue. It was always the, the same symbols and meaning the same things. It just all hit at once. Every once in a while, I would get that kind of inspiration in life where it was just kind of like, and it's there, you know. Filmmaker Adam Barnick. Another great episode is a visit with The Asylum. It exploded because big celebrities like Patton Oswalt or um, Mia Farrow and, and these other quirky, weird people started tweeting, I'm watching a crazy movie. What the hell's going on? What the hell is Sharknado? And then it started snowballing to everyone else talking about it at the same time. You can hear my full interview with The Asylum at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Mr. Barnick. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson, and we're back with filmmaker Adam Barnick. If you had your choice, would you choose Endless Resources, or do you really enjoy creating with restraints? Uh, 
God, it's, it's, I feel like right in the middle. I feel like if I had endless resources, I'd still make myself have some restraints to the point of even asking people to, even if I wasn't directly collaborating people, I would still want to get people's input. I've found a lot of filmmakers, even some I admire, they usually have this period of like where they become so powerful that they're in a bubble and they no longer have to say no to anything. And you can kind of tell that they could have just weathered a little bit of advice. I don't know. I, I guess I'd have to say with limitations, just in the sense of it's better to have some because if you pick a, I don't want to say a box, but if you've got parameters, it's easier to think. Like lately, I've been developing something which uh, is the first thing writing-wise I've really been excited about in two or three years. And I gave myself a couple of parameters of like, you know, only this many locations, only this many people. That may have been the only sort of real limit uh, to the point where like as I've developed it and it started to get bigger and go elsewhere, it got less interesting. Mm. It was, and I wasn't, you know, you don't want to box yourself in so much where like when you've been in production where you're like, Oh, I don't want to continue elaborating the sequence because I know we'll never have the money to shoot it the way this is because you don't know. But it, it's better to, I think, get it bigger and then re- rein it in. But it's helped me to think like, okay, just try to keep it to like the two or three locations. I would certainly like more resources <laughs> as we all would, but I, I don't think I want endless forever and ever. You know, I don't think anything I'm interested in needs 200 million bucks, you know? Nothing needs 200 million bucks. Yeah. That's, Not even the thing that you think costs 200 million bucks. Right. That's true. Yeah. I was, I, there's, it's funny because I, I have a, I put on one of my Instagrams for my post company, a thing about like, what's your dream project? And one I've always had is, is adapting this sci-fi trilogy that they, the British did in the eighties as sort of a low budget or it was big budget for them. But now it looks sort of clunky series. And I would love to do that. But I was also thinking the same thing of like, how can you do that? And and knock the numbers back, you know? Well, I mean, because you want it to be, but also it's like somewhat contained, or even if it's just, you know, staying with certain characters and certain locations. Well, I don't know. I think it's twofold. One, when a studio who does have endless resources, as a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are funding them, Mm -hmm. the people who are working for them and developing projects with them and being hired by them want to get as much of that money as possible. So their fees are astronomically through the roof on purpose. And some of those people that I have worked with whom Monday through Friday, you know, if somebody asks, what's your rate? They say numbers I can't even fathom who then work with me on a project. And I know very well what I'm paying them and they would never want me to tell anybody that. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like the truth is it's from an independent filmmaking point of view, you know, when it's my film and I'm responsible for how much it's costing and the expense of it, I care about getting every cent taken off as if I can, because it's, you know, I, I know what it means to put it out into the world and then try to license it and make some money back, you know, because I don't have. $10 $10 million to spend on advertising, which would be basically the minimum, you know, but if I'm being hired to direct a movie for someone else, I don't care what they're doing with the budget. Yeah. No, and you've had both experiences now, you know? Yes. But basically that's the, you know, I, I understand income and my God, you know, I mean, if we look at the John Cassavetes model of 
being an actor for big budget Hollywood movies so that he could make a lot of money and then use that money to go home and make independent films with his wife, mm-hmm. you know, um, and he wasn't spending the same amount on his movies, no. you know, that the big movies that he was in cost. I just think it's understanding the differences and then also just treating it with respect in both regards. That's going on in this thing I'm developing right now. Oh, I'd really like to see this guy visit these four different places in this 10 minute sequence. And then me stopping myself and going like, no, I mean, is that how many company moves is that going to be? But I'm like, I'm not ready to shoot this yet. I don't even have it entirely. You know, it's only 90% mapped out. So it's never going to get James Cameron size. So just give it the, you know, the two or three extra little places. And if you had no choice, but to cut one day of shooting, if you were making it, you could find a way to combine those two, just as long as you know what this, what, why the scene was there, you know? So, yeah. So I'm trying to do that where, keeping it modest, but not so chokeholded over how I'm going to imagine it until I have A, the thing that's completed that is good enough that I wanted to show it to others, or B, when we're actually going to try to make it get it made. And you also, you never know what sort of things could pop in to become part of your, your toolkit or your resources that you wouldn't otherwise have known about. You know, I mean, not, for instance, you know, someone who owns a castle in Romania would say, oh, film in my castle. And you're like, Really? You know, so it's, it's that commonly doesn't happen, but sometimes it does. Or my uncle Bill has two helicopters. You want to do the helicopter chase scene? <laughs> like, oh my God, of course. You know, um, you just never know. Yeah. Do you like doing music videos? I do. I, I can't say I've gotten to do it enough. Uh, it was, it's been very sporadic and, you know, I, I guess there are some ways to still do them in, in the COVID era, but I feel like largely the kinds I would want to do are on that filmmaking's on pause, you know, at our budget levels right now. Uh, But I do, I think I like them for the same reason that I've liked experimental shorts is because, you know, there's, I wouldn't say there's necessarily no rules, no limits. You know, I I would, the music video's purpose is still really to bring attention to that artist and highlight them in the best possible way. That doesn't necessarily mean shooting them the prettiest, but like, you know, it's gotta be a way that keeps them and that song as striking and memorable as it can be. But if you've seen just sort of the random ones I sent you the links, it's like, they're all different, which is cool. One of them's that old hand crank. That's not old, but like this tiny hand cranked film camera, the black and white one I sent you is that's my probably my most expensive one. That's period locations. That's, you know, costumes we bought that's rentals. That's that one really was like, we've got, we're not compromising, you know, (laughs) It's, it's still minimalist in its own way, but it wasn't like we were going to then just cut it down to just, you know, the, the burial sequence or something like that. I like them because they're so different and I think you can continue to make them differently. And it invites experimentation and creativity that other stories may not, you know, like there are certain stories that would work good with that hand cranked camera or certain sequences in a story. But you couldn't just say, well, we're going to shoot anything with that. It doesn't, it won't serve every form, you know, thing you're going to make. Yeah. I love the one with the, uh, the dancing, the choreography. I think it was originally just going to be in a dance studio. We didn't really have a ton of money for that. Like the studio I watched the rehearsals in, I was just like, this is just a really tough place. You know, it's all mirrors. There's no where place to hide. Where are we going to put different lights? And it, it distracted from focusing really on these two women and their exchange. Yeah. So, but then we were like, you know what, it, when we did it with the lights, it was, it's almost like you're on a stage somewhere 
and it's practically lit. We would just turn the car on, turn the lights on, and we had maybe just a couple of bounce boards and nothing else. We were able to get all of that stuff that isn't the actual musical performance in, I don't know, like three hours, maybe. And they never changed what they were doing other than maybe just cheating once or twice for the camera, but it was always the same moves. And then we would just work around them. Yeah, it was cool. I, I, my favorite part was the fact that it was done in the wild, so to speak. You know, it was like, you know, a little bit of magical realism, you know, of being in the world and having that happen. Yeah, no, it was just, it actually was in uh, my, the house my family lived in at the time, their driveway. We were originally going to do it out in this field that was a few blocks away. And we got permission to do it, but there wasn't as much, I don't remember why, I think the, it w- definitely there was something wrong with the ground and just turns of being uneven. And, and like, you know, I always wanted to make sure that they weren't like falling in little holes and stuff or, or, you know, like we, we put stuff down so they could spin each other around and you just couldn't pull that off on like the floor of uh, a cornfield, you know? <laughs> right. How kind of you. <laughs> um, it, it worked much better. Just, you know, it, it, we stripped it all down and it was just like, like two lights pointing at them in the dark. It doesn't even matter that they're in a driveway. I don't even think you can tell, you know, I would have never known. I I just, I imagined somewhere in the middle of a street, you know, like a a road or something. Mm -hmm. Where's the craziest location you've ever filmed in? Uh, I mean, does it have to be a project I directed or just something I was involved in? Either. Uh, Well, I I mentioned that Japanese music video that I was a part of when I first came to New York and started getting into production. That was in a dilapidated warehouse in Greenpoint in and around it. But the second floor, for some reason, they wanted to shoot a lot of stuff on the second floor, which had a hole the size of a regular, like say four family house in the floor with nothing to prevent us from just spilling right through it. Um, I don't remember why they needed to do scenes around it. Cause it wasn't, we never actually filmed the hole, but it was just kind of like this constant risk of like this place falling down around us. When I did uh, those rivulets music videos, the scenes with the performer were all shot in a different warehouse and it's funny because i wasn't concerned about the ground falling and i was i was concerned about the ceiling falling in because the guy who rented me the warehouse decided to have his crew renovating the roof that day um i don't know why he thought scheduling us at the same time was going to work and uh, (laughs) while while the noise wasn't an issue uh they literally brought down a huge section of the roof while we were shooting and then suddenly like all this light hits us like you know like when they want to kill the vampire at the end of the movie and they like rip the wall down the sunlight's just like and you see him he's he's shot in like a void with just like a couple of little you know key lights so that was a one of those moments where you can just do nothing but laugh and you know get angry with the guy afterwards but but they my crew ended up going somewhere else and getting like a duvetine curtain that was so i'd never seen one that big in my entire life but they used it to cut the studio in half and block all that light. And we maybe just lost like an hour. Yeah, no, I think I've been largely okay in terms of odd locations. I mean, I've been shot in cool locations like that house in the Civil War music video is the oldest standing house in New York state. And it's in Brooklyn. It's very, it looks very odd to be on the street corner next to like an old gas station and, you know, various high rise apartments. But I believe it's from the 1850s or 1860s, and it's and we didn't do a thing to it to art direct it except we brought one bucket as a prop. Everything else is exactly the way that it was, 
And it felt like this well-kept secret, like there were tours and stuff, but nobody ever shot there, I think, until us. Now people shoot there all the time. I think they largely make their money through the donations of photographers and, and you know, short filmmakers and stuff shooting there now. I feel like I've actually heard about that place from other people. It's called the Wyckoff House. I think now it's got a, a bit of a name for itself. It was more like just in this very short list of a historic registry because we were trying to shoot in some sort of historic house, but that would be somewhat accurate to the period, or at least feel accurate to the period, and that, uh, and have the space that we needed to do those scenes. Uh, it was perfect. I wanted to ask what, what some of your influences were, because I, I don't, from what you're saying about mainstream, it sounds fantastic and sounds really interesting, especially if it's an, an audio, as it sounds like film. Were you influenced by other filmmakers? I know there's some European filmmakers that have worked with sound. I think Stalker was one of the ones where they were used that and other ones that, so I was just wondering if anyone that you gravitated to, oh my gosh, that, Um, I mean, David Lynch, definitely. It's like ever since I saw Racerhead in high school, right? it, it's sound has stuck with me and Mm -hmm. never left anything of his uh, there. I will often throw on a movie of his just to hear it you know, in the background. Wow. Even today, that is definitely a bit, it was a big influence on it. Don Coscarelli, the filmmaker who's best known for the Phantasm movies and uh, John dies at the end and Bubba. Uh-huh. I've always liked him as a filmmaker and his creative spirit. Uh, the Phantasm movies were definitely a big influence on me as a kid. Like if you watch mainstream, the medical instruments and imagery and the fact that a guy is tied to a, you know, a, autopsy table all, all of that i'm sure unconsciously came from those movies the phantasm universe on yeah. some level um i don't know if any other filmmaker i could directly say like this guy or this woman that uh, definitely influenced it what's interesting is i have like an entire other side as a filmmaker like i wouldn't say like i just do this kind of like you know abstract or Right, but you were talking about that. We're filmmaking. Yeah. Short that I would love to do next, like, is entirely like a handheld. It is entirely actor driven. It's all natural sound. The stylization will be in it feeling like it doesn't have any. It'll be entirely driven by the performances and we'll be like literally following them around in like long held handheld takes. Filmmakers like Sidney Lumet uh, are people who I like, I really, really love. Yeah. is equally as sort of the avant-garde guys, you know? And that's actually the direction I think, at least for a couple of projects I'd like to do in the near future that I'm going to go in. There'd be much more actor, director working together driven versus it just being the imagery or in mainstream where the people are more just symbols that I'm pushing around versus me working with them to get nuanced performances out of them, you know? Fascinating. I'm looking to continue to build in those two different directions. Well, and you know, that is something that's similar between us is, you know, I can get really avant-garde and really dark and really crazy and sort of on one end. Mm -hmm. And then I also have a desire to tell a straightforward narrative, commercially understood, you know, uh, structure. Mm -hmm. And I go back and forth a lot. Yeah. We're not all just one thing. Filmmaker. Adam Barnick. You can see Mainstream on Mr. Barnick's Vimeo channel and find out more by visiting wickedtreecreative.com.
Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going. <laughs>